God's common grace is seen in many ways and in many places, and it seems appropriate this week after Wednesday, Michelle and I were up near Sugar Bowl, and we were hiking with our dogs, and we came to a spot where the snowpack was so deep that I could almost reach the power lines with my hands. We cry out to the Lord in the summertime when we see a plume of smoke coming up near our property or home. And today, I think it is, as we, before we get into God's Word, a good time to say thank you to God for the rain and the snow that He has given to us. Job 37, God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. And he has done that. If you'd like to, we could say, thank you, Lord, together. Ready? Thank you, Lord. Well, let's shift our uh, attention to the word today. And as we do this, I want to remind you that we are not looking, as we look to God's word, primarily for knowledge. We are not looking at God's Word. We are certainly not looking at God's Word for entertainment this morning. We are not looking to God's Word to check a box that we listen to a sermon, that we perform some religious duty. That is not why we are looking to God's Word today. One of the reasons, perhaps the primary reason, we look at God's Word each week and we read it and we preach from it is to change us because we need His grace. So as we come to God's Word today, we are looking for His grace to change me. For me, that happens primarily throughout the week as I'm preparing for today. And now... I've been praying that his word would change you. There are two primary gospel themes in today's passage where we need to be changed. And that first theme is the theme of generosity. It is God's will for you and me to be generous. So we need his grace to help me and to help you to be generous. The other theme we're going to see And I mentioned this in our prayer before. We actually see the opposite of these themes, but we'll get to that in a moment. The second theme that we see in today's passage is the theme of loving one's enemies. We need his grace to help us love our enemies. So as we, I'm reminding you of what we should be doing whenever you or I are reading the Bible or listening to the Bible be read or listening to a sermon. What we should be doing is looking for the mutual human condition that you and I share with what is going on in the text. So in our text today, there's, there's two people who, like us, are messed up, uh, primarily Nabal and David in today's passage. And we are actually like them, you and I when we are living out of the flesh, when we are not yielded to the Spirit. And so we want to identify 
with them so that we can be changed by his grace. So all of that by way of introduction, let's jump into the God's Word today. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 25, and we're going to begin at verses 1 through 3, which is really um, an introduction to this chapter. So I've, I've divided it into uh, five sections, today's unit of Scripture, and the first one is background of David with Nabal and Abigail, the, the background of David with Nabal and Abigail. But first, we actually have a verse about Samuel. Look at verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. So just briefly here, just a reminder that believers mourn, that believers grieve. This is normal, and this is what happened when Samuel died. This is a, a historic passing, and we just have this verse uh, letting us know that this has happened. And then we move to what is really going on in today's chapter involving David and Nabal and Abigail as well. So the introduction to them, the background of David and his interactions with Nabal and Abigail, verse, uh, we're continuing in verse 1. Then David moved down into the desert of Maon. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. So those of you that are familiar with the Carmel in Israel, you may be thinking of the snow-capped peak in the north of Israel. That's not what this Carmel is. This is a, a, a town near Ziph. This is a, a, another, same name, but a different place than that mountain. Verse 3, so this very wealthy individual... In the language of my oldest son, a, a, a high net worth individual or a ultra high net worth individual, his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. Or another way to translate that would be she was good in understanding. She was lovely in form. But her husband, a Calebite, was surely is what my translation has. If there's a word that we don't use very often, it's surely in this context, which means <laughs> surly, surly, yeah, sorry, surly. Uh, help me out, church, if I'm making mistakes here. Surly, that, that, that's not, do you use that word? Only the Bible, right? Like, who, only the translators of the Bible. I'm not putting the Bible down, I'm putting down our English translators. Who, who uses that word? Does anybody here use that word? I need some help, but it means threatening in appearance. Threatening in appearance, like some pastors, that, that's surly and, and mean in his dealings. That I, that I get in English. This is a bad dude. And his name is Nabal. I was talking with a couple people this morning. So this wasn't his given name. Nabal means fool. So no, no one names their child fool. So this is an earned name. This is an earned nickname, fool. And often I find some preachers just go too far out on a limb about names and what they mean and so forth. But here this is significant. We have a contrast between Nabal and Abigail. Abigail's name in Hebrew means something like um, uh, my father's joy. This, this daughter 
what, what was the joy of her father, made him smile. And I think as I've meditated on this text this week and read this text this week, I've thought about how grieved her father must have been, who in this ancient context would have arranged the marriage, would have given his daughter to Nabal, who was a fool, who went by some other name that we uh, don't know about. And this is actually not too uncommon of a situation. I don't want to take testimonies this morning, but if we had opportunity for testimonies, we probably could share in our own personal experiences of very wealthy, high net, individu- high net worth individuals, men who were jerks, who were, is that okay if I say jerk? This is who Nabal was, who are married to a beautiful and wise and godly woman. That is the situation that we have with this background, and their names are here to bring this out in part. Matthew Henry writes this. He says about Nabal, he was very rich, for riches make men look great in the eye of the world. So a father who loves his daughter might say, hey, this is the guy for you. Riches are common blessings, which God often gives to Nabal's, to whom he gives neither wisdom or grace. This is a rich fool of a man that we are introduced to. And there is a request that comes his way. The second division, as I tried to outline this unit of Scripture, we're just going through verse 17 today, is David's request in verses 4 through 9. So let's move along. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, and my translation says, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Another, a better way to translate it would be as it is on the screen. Uh, This is what you should say. Have a long life. Peace be to you. And peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. The Hebrew word that you're probably familiar with is used here three times. Shalom. May may your life in totality, your your physical well-being, your mental well-being, your intellectual well-being, your spiritual well-being, in your heart, may you have peace. This is the message that David is humbly sending to this man, this rich fool of a man who has an incredible amount of wealth. So he's sending 10 delegates there because they are in need of food and he's sending them with this blessing. Coming back uh, to the text We're at verse 7. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. So if you're not familiar with this in the ancient Near East, this was a time of party, a time of celebration, a time where there's lots of great food and drink. So it's not just work time, but it's festive. It's party time at verse 7. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. He's referring to his soldiers here, and this is an understatement that they were not mistreated. We're going to learn that later. 
David is speaking with great humility here to someone of great wealth and power and foolishness. And so uh, they didn't, we didn't mistreat them the whole time they were at Carmel. Nothing of theirs was missing. Verse 8, ask your own servants and they will tell you. So there's someone who's probably detached, dis, uh, detached from his servants, his employees. In the language of today, he he's has passive income. He's not connected to the work on the ground. He's got people doing the work for him, and who knows what he's up to. So speak to them. They'll tell you how we treated them when they were grazing in, in the fields where my men were preparing for battle and so on. This is the sense of what this passage is describing. So back to the text in verse 8. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men. Since we come at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David Notice that phrase, your son David. So this is the one who has been anointed king. This is the one the spirit is upon. This is the one who people are are, are singing about and looking to for leadership. But he defers to this probably older, wealthy, rich man by describing himself as your son David. Massive humility here. Whatever you can find for them. He sends ten. You would think he might have said a hundred. He's got a lot of men to feed. He's got a lot of men to care for. Ten men cannot carry that much stuff. So we have a few number of men going to a great wealth, a man of great wealth, asking for some help. Verse 9, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. I appreciate that phrase, and I think it's significant, then they waited. It lets us know, as, as though God hasn't already let us know, what kind of a man this is. I don't know if you've ever gone with someone that you're really dependent upon. You need their help. You need their assistance. You need their power. And to just kind of like torture you, 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 you have to wait. He could have responded straight away, but he doesn't. It tells us more about his character that they have to wait for the answer. So this is David's request. Now, the next section, verses 10 through 12, is where we're going to get our first of two themes for today's sermon. And that comes from Nabal's arrogant response after making these men wait for the humble request of food and nourishment and supplies from this man of incredible wealth. So let's look at his response. So Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Paraphrasing that sentence, he he knows that he's the son-in-law of the king, the functional king, the guy with the robe. And, And he's alluding that he has been defiant and disrespectful to authority. He's also betraying that he actually knows who David is. So we see a liar in verse 10. Who is this David? Like, I don't know who he is. Never heard of this guy, which is a lie. Who is this son of Jesse? Lots of people are breaking away uh, from their, their masters. David's reputation is massive at this point. Remember back in chapter 21, David arose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, king of Gath, 
But the servants of Achish said to him, this is the Philistine people, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? So the popular people in the superpower land of the Philistines, they know about David. And so does Nabal. But he's treating him like, like a, a podunk a person who he doesn't even know and is not even really worthy of saying his name or uh, just, just massive disrespect here in verse 9 to this, this son of Jesse. He, he, he's not from a family of, of massive wealth and power. Who is, who is the son of, of Jesse? Verse 11. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? So the reader's internal response here is, well, maybe because you have this massive wealth and maybe because they're hungry and maybe because they protected your shepherds as they were out getting all of this wealth for you, maybe there are a few reasons that you should share with him from your wealth. We have an arrogant response in verses 10 through 12. He does not want to share of his wealth. Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. So I want to pause here. This is where we get our first of two themes out of today's passage, two themes that I'm emphasizing. And the theme that I'm emphasizing, one of two themes in today's passage, is generosity. It is a theme of the gospel. It is at the heart of God. And it is what is missing here in Nabal's life. And so when we read the Bible, what we actually want to have happen is for the Bible to read us. We want the Bible to read our hearts the mutual human condition that we share with Nabal is that in our flesh, we want to retain our wealth and keep it for ourselves. We are, by nature, not generous people, but selfish people. So we desperately need God's grace to make us generous people sharing what we have with our neighbors or with those who are in need. Back in uh, a few weeks ago in January, uh, Forbes had America's Biggest Givers, 25 uh, top philanthropists, nobody from Cornerstone in the, uh, in the list there. Uh, as I looked at this list, which we're not going to go through the whole list, but something really uh, stuck out to me in this list. One, one individual stuck out to me, uh, hit, hit me. And as I looked at, at all of these different individuals, um, there, there's some commonalities between all of them. And the main commonality is every one of them, and I don't want to make light of this at all, every one of them have given billions of dollars to neighbors, to, to neighbors or people in the other countries or people around the world. That they, they have helped people 
with billions of their own dollars. So that's true for all 25 of our country's top philanthropists. What kind of country produces so many billionaires and they give so much billions of dollars away? It's an extraordinary place where we live. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, this is not what they gave away, but their net worth, uh, according to Forbes, is $49.3 billion. Uh, Jeff Bezos, both of these folks, uh, both of these uh, individuals are, are first couple, second individual, has given away billions. So what I'm listing here is what their net worth is. Jeff Bezos, $116.9 billion. And then uh, Warren Buffett was on the list too. His net worth is $106 billion. All, of, all 25 of these people have given away billions, and then it, it lists how much they give away, it lists how much their net worth is. But here's the one thing that stood out to me. There's one guy, one dude, I've never heard of him. Anybody heard of, of uh, Chuck Feeney? Anybody heard of this guy? So I never heard of this guy either. So he stood out because he is the only one who is no longer a billionaire. <laughs> this dude has given away his billions. And he's not a billionaire anymore. Very interesting. Feeney, a former billionaire, has practically given away all of his fortune. He began by do donating parts of his fortune anonymously, but later went public with his donations, influencing the Gateses and Buffett to create the Giving Pledge in 2010. And the Giving Pledge that many of these uh, billionaires, nobody in the Cornerstone family signed this pledge, but uh, this giving pledge is to give away half of your wealth before you die. So a bunch of people have signed that, that this dude, Sweeney, uh, came up with. Feeney and his wife, Helga, shut down the Atlantic Philanthropies Foundation in 2010 after it gave away all its assets. As near as I can tell, uh, this dude has a net worth of some of the people in our own congregation. He's given away his billions. And so he stands out in this list of 25. What does this have to do with you and me? We don't have billions. You know, God's metric for being generous um, is not uh, quantitative. It's not about the dollars that we give away. And we know this from the New Testament, we look at Mark chapter 12. You're familiar with this story. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Amount to a cent. And that might be somewhat generous. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, and by extension, he says to us today, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. She would have put in two coins like this. Worth less than a cent, the lepta, nearly worthless coins put into the offering by the widow. But Jesus says she put in more than all the contributors to this treasury. They, they had a setup there where it was very public how much money you put in. They had these, you know, cones as it were, and, and, and it was audible, and it was visible, and kind of, kind of like the Forbes issue, it's, it's out there for everybody to see. But Jesus identifies her heart. Jesus, God, looks at the heart. And this woman was incredibly generous. 
And his desire for you and me is to grow in our own generosity today. By his grace, he wants to make us generous. This is the kind of thing, as we read the Old Testament, that we want the Bible to read us. We want to read our hearts. And so we should respond to this text today, not by checking off a box, not by saying, yeah, that was a really entertaining sermon, but but God, I, I need to be generous. Where would you have me grow in generosity? We see Jesus' generosity in Mark 6. You're familiar with this story. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves, probably more than 10,000 people there. We see the generosity of our God and how he saw all of these hungry people, and he, he, he said, I'm going to feed them. Back to, to 1 Samuel 25, we see the opposite of the gospel theme of generosity. And we need God's grace to make us into generous people. And so I'm praying that the Spirit is at work, and maybe you've already thought of an area or a person or an individual or some way that God is leading you to be generous, to be like that woman who, who, who didn't look impressive, who, who didn't make the Forbes list, but she's identified as Jesus, as being a generous person. How does God want to use you to be generous in your giving? That's theme number one. Theme number two uh, comes out of verse 13. And again, we see the opposite of the gospel theme. We see David's vengeful response to Nabal in verse 13. Just one verse here. So we've made it through verse 12, right? Yeah, so we're at verse 13. So they, the men have come back. They, they waited some period of time for Nabal's response. Now they've come back to David, and we see David's response in verse 13. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Now the numbers are significant here. David was characterized by humility and graciousness and respect for Nabal. He only sent 10 men to get food. Wouldn't have gone very far for all of the mouse he's trying to feed. But out of respect and, and honor, he, he just sent 10 and said, will you please help us? Now he is furious. He's in rage. He's lost self-control. And he wants to take out not only Nabal, but his servants, his people, and bring back the bounty. So he's got 400 men ready to murder and bring back what's going on. Uh, bring back the, 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 the stuff there. David's vengeful response to Nabal. Matthew Henry again writes this. He says, he who at other times used to be calm and considerate. Now, those of you that were here last week, uh, we saw David just incredible last week, humbly on the ground, vulnerable before Saul, asking for God to be at work, 
and, and making himself vulnerable before Saul, the guy who's trying to kill him, and he's just trusting God, and he's just this incredible example in chapter 24. And in chapter 25, David has lost it, and he's got a heart full of anger and violence, and David is like you and me. We can be super godly and yield it to the Spirit, and then we can lose it. And the flesh has gotten a hold of us. And we're full of anger. We're not like David in the sense that we're not a captain of a military and are going to call people to, to, to murder. But in, in his heart, in, in, in the heart, we are just like David. Again, we want the scriptures to read us. When is it that I lose control? I, I, David, David was our, our, our hero. He was so Christ-like last week, but this week he's not. Matthew Henry reminds us of that. He who at other times used to be calm and considerate, especially the previous chapter, is now put into such a heat by a few hard words that nothing will atone for them but the blood of a whole family. Lord, what is man? What are the best of men or the best of women when God leaves them to themselves to try them that they may know what is in their hearts. We are people, as Christ followers, who are called to love our enemies, not to snap at them, be angry at them, be violent toward them. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That first quote is from Scripture. And the Pharisees and Sadducees taught that, love your neighbor. And then the second quote is not from Scripture, hate your enemy, but that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were teaching. They're teaching, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus is saying, this is the kind of teaching that you've heard, but I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your Father in heaven. I want to ask you this morning, have you prayed for someone who opposes you? Most of us, if you do some internal perusing, some of you don't have to do much perusing, you know of people who oppose you. You know people who do not like you. You know people who are against you. Have you prayed for that person? Maybe they are decidedly against something that you are for. God calls Christ followers to pray for them. This is impossible apart from his grace and his spirit. As we read the word of God, we really need the word of God to read us. And we have the anti-themes of the gospel here, the mutual human condition that you and I share with these humans, Nabal and David, in this text. The example that I think of often when I need help to pray for my enemies is our Lord on the cross. Literally on the cross. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. He's praying for his enemies, the actual executioners, of the one who has no sin 
He's praying, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. David's vengeful response to Nabal reminds us of the kind of responses that you and I have when we are operating in the flesh. We are desperate for God's grace to help us. We've covered the two themes in today's text that God has shown me that we need his help for. We're going to finish up looking at verses 14 through 17, which is the heading I've given it is, the best man for the job is a woman. I get an amen on that one from maybe some ladies. So in this passage, the men have failed. The men are are losers in this passage, in this chapter, in this setting. And we need someone to help this situation. Verse 14, one of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail. There's no sense in telling Nabal, the fool. There's no sense in talking with David right now. So we see some wisdom in one of the servants going to Abigail, the one who was her father's joy, who was in a terribly unfortunate marriage. So David sent messengers uh, so, so back to 14. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, here's what he tells her. David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Or another way to translate it would be, he railed on them. Or he screamed at them. I think my translation here is a little weak. He screamed at them. This is how he responded. Verse 15, yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us the whole time we were out in the fields. Near them, nothing was missing. No one stole from us, neither them or anyone else is what he's saying. Verse 16, night and day, they were a wall around us. So these men, David's men, were a wall. They were protectors for Nabal's flock and the shepherds. All the time we were herding our our sheep near them. Verse 17. Now think it over and see what you can do, Abigail. Because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So we are going to mostly get into Abigail next week. I want to simply say this week is she is the one who can bring shalom or peace to the situation. Uh, the men have, have uh, both checked out to what God would have expected of them, and God raises up a, a, a woman to save the day. We'll look at more of that saving of the day next week. But I did think of this uh, quote that generally I don't like, um, but a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. In general, I don't like that, but here, um, it's, uh, it's true. The men here uh, have failed, and a woman has come to the rescue to bring about peace. She is a wise woman. She is a beautiful woman. She is full of understanding. She is in a terrible marriage that she didn't have any choice in that ancient culture of getting into. 
and she is an awesome lady, and we're going to look at her next week. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, uh, we have seen in your word today the priority of generosity, the priority of instead of being vengeful and angry with those who oppose us, to pray for them, to be gracious to them. It is so easy to lose it when people are against us or oppose us. So I'm praying that there might be specific actions in light of today's passage to how each of us might be generous, how we might grow in generosity, that we maybe begin there by just praying, Lord, help me grow to be generous as Jesus was. And Lord, help me to respond when there is opposition to me that I would respond with grace, with prayer, and even to love my enemies. Help us to be like Jesus, we pray in his name.